Chapter 23 of Countess Erika's Apprenticeship. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Vinay Mala. Countess Erika's Apprenticeship by Osip Shubin. Translated by Annie Sleevester. Chapter 23. In addition to many trying and strange characteristics possessed by Erika, Providence had bestowed upon her one which at this time stood her instead. Upon any sphere agitating experience, a few hours of cool, hard self-consciousness were sure to ensue, hours in which she was perfectly able to appear in the world with dry eyes and not even the keenest observer could perceive any change in her, save that her laugh was perhaps more frequent and more silvery. This condition of mind was far from being an agreeable one. Moreover, the reaction afterwards was terrible. Nevertheless, thanks to this moral paralysis, Erika was able in critical moments to preserve appearances. The day on which as she supposed her happiness, her faith, the entire purpose of her life lay in ruins about her, was occupied with social duties of every description. She performed them all, an afternoon tea with lawn tennis, a dinner and at last a supper with music at the Austrian consuls. And even when the old countess on their way home from the councils proposed that they should look in at Frau van Nierwinden's, upon whom they had not called since the memorable evening when Minona read, Erika declared herself quite willing to do so. Perhaps this was because she had a secret hope of meeting Lozensi there, for she longed to see him to show him how entirely he had been mistaken if he had supposed. Ah, what pretexts we invent to deceive ourselves as to the cowardly impulses of our desires. But he was not at Frau van Nierwinden's, where the old countess found herself so well entertained, however, that she passed an hour discussing the latest Venetian scandal in which Erika took no interest. She strolled away from the group of elderly guests and through the open glass doors leading out upon a balcony above the water where she seemed quite forgotten by those within the apartment. Beneath her on the dark surface of the lagoon the gondolas were crowding from all quarters around a bark whence came music and song. They glided past over the black water, a broad stream of humanity attracted as by a magnetic needle lured by a voice. Nearer and nearer came the song, until it swept past beneath Erika's balcony. Nino, Nino, kufe tu da lavi, tua kina padamu. And above her glimmered the stars, myriads of words, sparkling and shining down disdainfully upon wretched humanity, writhing and striving in its efforts to attain paltry ends, so vastly important in its own estimation. Erika lay awake all night long, oppressed by a terrible burden, not grief for a happiness of which she had dreamed and which had proved to be impossible, but something infinitely harder to be borne by a person of her temperament, the sense of disgrace. So long as she had been firmly convinced that he loved her, far from resenting the unconventional expression 
of his admiration she had taken pleasure in it but now the whole matter bore another aspect in her eyes she remembered with painful distinctness the superficial frivolous theories of life which he had advanced upon their first acquaintance love yes he might perhaps have experienced what he designated thus but at the thought her cheeks burned she had pleased him as hundreds before her had done and in the full consciousness of the ties of marriage by which he was bound he had allowed himself to make love to her as he would have done to any common flirt when at last in entire faith in the sincerity yes in the sacredness of his feeling for her she had generously laid bare her heart before him he had been simply terrified by the revelation he is probably laughing at me now she said to herself trembling in every limb then with infinite bitterness she added no he is probably reproaching himself and wondering at my folly it was enough to drive her insane she buried her burning face in her pillow and groaned aloud she shed not a tear throughout the night and she appeared punctually as usual at the breakfast table but in the midst of the pleasant little meal which was always taken in her grandmother's boudoir she was overcome by an intense weariness she longed to flee to some dark corner where no one could find her and there let the tears flow freely the meal was however unusually prolonged the old countess who had quite forgotten her vexation at lozenzi's concealment of his marriage and who had been vastly entertained the previous evening at frau von nirwinden's was in an excellent humor and was full of conversation in which she showed herself both amusing and witty erica forced herself to laugh and to seem gay when just as she felt unable to endure the situation for another moment ludek appeared with a note for her it had come he informed her the day before shortly after the ladies had gone out to dinner and he begged to be forgiven for having forgotten to deliver it old donkey the countess landoff murmured erica opened the note with trembling hands it came from fraulein host the poor music teacher she wrote that she had been worse for a couple of days and had made up her mind to go home with pathetic gratitude and sincere admiration she desired to take leave of erica thus in writing since her weak condition would not allow her to call upon her really distressed and a little ashamed of having of late somewhat neglected the poor creature erica had a gondola called and went immediately to the pension weber when she asked in the hall of the establishment for fraulein host the dismay painted on every face at once revealed to her the truth the poor music teacher had passed away she asked to be taken to the room where the dead woman lay and as atilio the hotel waiter conducted her thither he told how there had been for a long time no hope of the invalid's recovery the day before yesterday the last symptom had appeared a restless longing for change for travel her departure had been fixed for this evening they had all hoped so that she would get off but she had died here they found her dead in bed this very morning her candle burnt down into the socket and her open book on her bed oh yes it was very sad to die so away from home and it was very unpleasant for the establishment 
Achilenza had no idea of the injury it was to the pension. The Sinor Baron in the first story had declared that he would not spend another night there. As Atilio finished, he unlocked the room where the body lay and ushered in Erika. She motioned to him to leave her alone. The room was darkened. Erika drew aside the curtains a little. There was a crucifix among the medicine bottles on the table beside the bed and a book open apparently at the place where the dead woman had been last reading. It was a German translation of Romeo and Juliet. It was open at the balcony scene. It is the nightingale and not the lark. Erika kneeled down at the bedside, buried her face in the coverlet and wept bitterly. When Atilio came to remind her gently not to stay long, she arose and followed him with bowed head from the room. As she was going down the stairs, she heard a harsh grating voice with a slight polished accent called Sophie, Sophie, are you ready? And then from the end of the corridor, two figures appeared. One, a short, thick-set woman, heavily laden with a bundle of shawls, a travelling bag and several umbrellas, and looking up at a man who walked beside her. His hands in the pockets of his plaid jacket, his eyeglass in his eye, allowing himself with much condescension to be adored. They were Stanchiski and his second wife. E Sinore Berune, murmured Atilio. Stanchiski glanced towards Erika. He frowned and looked away. She was glad that he did so, for in her dejected condition she could hardly have brought herself to speak to the couple. Her whole soul was filled with the desire to creep away to some quiet spot where she might find relief in tears. She sent away her gondola and hurried through the narrow streets to the Piazza San Zecairi. There she took refuge in the church of the same name. It was empty. Not even a tourist was present to gaze upon the beauty of the famous Gian Bellini. She crouched down in the darkest corner upon the hard stones and there, leaning her head upon the rush seat of a church chair, she wept more uncontrollably than she had done beside the corpse of the poor music teacher. All at once she felt that she was no longer alone. She looked up. Beside her stood Lozensi. She arose doing what she could to summon her pride to her aid. What strange chance brings you here? She asked him. No chance whatever, he replied. I saw you enter the church and I followed you. Ah, by a supreme effort, she forced herself to assume an indifferent tone. I have just been to the pension Weber to take a leave of my poor music teacher. I found her dead. You may imagine. He shook his head. And you would have me believe that the tears you have just shed are for that poor creature? It is hardly worth the trouble. Countess Erika, I have followed you to speak with you undisturbed for the last time, to thank you and to entreat your forgiveness. Be frank with me, as I shall be with you. Let us have the consolation of knowing that when we parted, the heart of each was laid bare to the other. It will be but poor comfort after all. He uttered the words with so decided a casting aside of all disguise that Erika's pride availed her nothing. In vain did she seek for words in which to reply. She looked in his face and was startled to see it so wan and haggard. You see, he said perceiving her dismay, that in this case your wounded pride may be entirely satisfied. You can easily dispense with it. 
compared with the torture i have endured since the day before yesterday evening your pain is mere child's play oh i pray you he spoke in somewhat of his old impatient tone the tone of a man whose wishes are usually complied with gladly sit down for a moment this is our last opportunity for speaking with each other i owe you an explanation you have a right to ask me how i came to conceal from you that i was married to that i can only reply that i never speak of my marriage i am not proud of my wife i never take her into society with me few of the friends whom i have here are aware that i am married although i do not intentionally make a secret of it i frequently travel alone and last autumn the relations between my wife and myself from causes unnecessary to relate became of so strained a nature that we agreed to separate for a time i avoided when i could even the thought of her in spite of all this i ought not to have refrained from acquainting you with my circumstances nor should i have done so if i had dreamed you shrink but we have agreed that for once in our lives entirely casting aside pretense we will tell each other the truth in this case there is nothing in it that can offend your pride i had conceived an enthusiasm for you when you were a very little girl shall i say that i loved you from the first moment that i saw you no you excited my curiosity my wonder i could not help thinking of you a veritable angel with wings would not have been more wonderful to me than such a being as yourself i did not wish to believe in you at times i called you too high strung at times i said to myself that yours was simply a cold nature you know how i avoided you avoided you when i could not take my eyes off you and then then you have no idea of how my heart beat when i went to you to beg to be allowed to paint your portrait from that time all speculation with regard to you was at an end i blissfully and gratefully accepted the miracle revealed to me nay i ceased to regard you as a miracle you were for me the key to a pure noble life of which i had hitherto never dreamed and i began to long for this life the disgust i had hitherto felt for the whole world i now felt for myself and then all was over with me i had no longer any thought save of you my whole soul was filled with eager anticipation of the short time i could pass with you when you were gone i used to sit for hours in my studio recalling in memory your every look and word the budding freshness of your being which needed only a little sunshine to blossom forth gloriously your profound capacity for enthusiasm the wealth of affection concealed beneath a coldness of manner and withal the proud unsullied purity of your heart mind and soul oh god how lovely it all was but you were so far removed from me a universe separated us never no never for one moment did i dream of your bestowing one thought of love upon me then when conscious that the joy which had come to be my life was so soon to end i went to you in most melancholy mood the day before yesterday evening your look the tone of your voice set my brain on fire i left you and wandered about the streets like one possessed when at last i went home i shut myself up in the studio and began to dream 
I pictured what my life might have been had I been free to clasp in my arms the bliss that might have been mine. I seemed to feel your presence so pure, so holy and yet so tender and loving. The life at which I had always sneered, a home life, seemed to me the only one worth living if lived with you. I dreamed it in every detail. I thought how my art could be ennobled and purified through you. My art, which until now had been little more than the cry of a tortured soul. My former life lay far behind me, like some foul swamp from which you had rescued me. How I adored you! How tenderly and truly I reverenced you! Then on a sudden, I awoke to the consciousness of how impossible it all was. I crept out into the garden where in the early dawn all looked pale and fading like my dying dream. I forced myself to think. It paid me so to think. But I forced myself to do so, to draw conclusions. Whichever way my thoughts turned, they led to despair, to separation from you. I could not resist the conviction that it was my duty to end all intercourse with you as quickly as possible. What next occurred you know yourself. But you never can dream of what I endured from the time when you entered my studio yesterday morning until the moment when you followed me into the garden and there among the roses held out your hands to me. Your eyes filled with light, everything about you so chaste, so grave, so tender. No, that agony you never can imagine. Not to be able to fall at your feet, to take you in my arms and say, my heaven, my queen, my every thought, my life, my art shall all be one prayer of gratitude to you. To live a joyless life when joy is all unknown is nothing, a matter of course. But when an angel opens wide the gates of paradise for one and one must say, No, I dare not, it is horrible. One cannot believe it possible to survive it, he ceased. Erika had listened to him with bowed head. Every word that he had uttered had been balm to her wounded pride and at the same time had excited that which was most easily stirred within her, the tenderest, warmest emotion of her heart, her compassion. She had, it is true, a vague consciousness that it was not right that she should listen to such words from a married man. But she stifled it with the excuse that it was their last interview. His eyes sought hers. Apparently, he expected her to speak, but her lips refused to frame a sentence. Although there was a question which she longed to ask, he leaned towards her. There is something you would fain ask, he whispered. Tell me what it is. I, I, at last she managed to say, I cannot comprehend what induced you to marry that woman. He shrugged his shoulders. No, nor can I now myself. How can I make you understand that in the world in which I lived, there were no women who inspired me with respect. It was made up of my fellow students and of women in no wise superior to the one of whom we are speaking. I was convinced that all her sex were either like her or were harsh old maids like my aunt Ilona. Ten years older than I, she controlled my thoughts and my actions. I could not do without her. And at last I married her for fear lest someone of my fellow students should take her from me. He paused. Erika drew her breath painfully. 
Shortly afterwards came fame. He began anew, suddenly overnight, as it were, and all doors were flung wide for me. I do not want to represent myself to you as a better man than I am. I do not deny that all went smoothly in the beginning. I did not suffer from the burden with which I had laden my life. Dozens of my fellows lived just as I did. She relieved me of every petty care. She removed every obstacle from my path. She undertook all my transactions with the picture dealers. She was everything that I was not. Practical, cautious, energetic. I went into society without her. She was content that it should be so. And I enjoyed the intercourse with other women, that charm which was lacking in my home. I felt no disgust then at my own want of all true perception. The fashionable circles which I frequented were in no wise in advance, so far as a lofty standard of morality was concerned, of those in which I had lived hitherto. Whence does a young artist nowadays derive his knowledge of so-called refined society? From a few exaggerated women who befriend him half the time because they were wearing for a new toy. We poor fellows have but little opportunity to sound the depths of a true, pure womanly nature, least of all in the beginning of our career. It never occurred to me to think what my life might have been under other influences, until, oh Erica, Erica, why did you so transform me? Why did you drag me from the mire which was my element, to leave me to perish? She put both hands to her temples. What can I do? She murmured, hoarsely. What can I do? There she stood, pale and still, trembling with sympathy and compassion, needing help and helpless, more beautiful than ever, with cheeks flushed and eyes bright with fever. On a sudden, the cannon from San Giorgio announced the hour of noon, and instantly all the bells in Venice began to swim their brazen tongues. Erika awaked as from a dream. I must go, she said. My grandmother is expecting me. This is farewell forever, he murmured. He bowed his head and turned away. She could not endure the sight of his agony. Approaching him and laying her hand upon his arm, she began, Do you really believe that you owe no duty to your wife? None. He could not understand why she should ask the question. Then, then she stammered, Why not obtain a divorce? He gazed at her for an instant. And you could then consent to be my wife? You, the beautiful, idolized Countess Erika Lendoff, the wife of a poor, divorced artist? Yes, she replied firmly. Then offering him her hand and once more lifting to his her clear, pure eyes, she left the church. In an inspired frenzy of self-sacrifice, as it were, she crossed the piazza, where the grass grew between the uneven stones of the pavement and above which the grey clouds were floating. She was as if borne aloft by an inspiration that elevated her whole being. Suddenly she became aware of a discord in her sensations. On her ear there fell sung to the tinkling accompaniment of a guitar the words To my baniato il seno mio dali garime tamo de menezo amo Looking up, she perceived the same repulsive musicians that had so shocked her a while ago on the Piazza San Stefano. She hastened her steps, but the sound long pursued her. Tamo di menezo amo. 
until it died away with the last arm she frowned she was indignant that the wondrous sacred word should be thus profaned there was no brightness in the future to which erica looked forward of this she was fully aware they must go forth into the world he and she with none to wish them godspeed none to bless them and yet the melancholy which shrouded their love made it doubly dear to her the craving for suffering which for some time past had thrilled her excited nerves now stirred within her had she not been seeking it lately everywhere in poetry in music in art she passed the day in this state of enthusiastic exultation at night she slept better than she had for long but shortly after she awaked she was assailed by a distracting feverish agitation no arrangement had been made as to how she should get the intelligence from lezenzi with regard to his wife's consent to a divorce would he bring the information himself would he send her a note 10 o'clock struck half past 10 11 and no message came her hands her lips her brow burned with fever she drew her breath with difficulty about 11 o'clock the old countess went to take her for noon walk she had been gone but a short time when ludek announced her fun lozenzi erica had him shown up and the first glance which she cast at his face told her that for him there was no possibility of a release without a word she held out her hand to him his hand was icy cold and trembled in her clasp he looked pale and wretched the picture of misery possessed absolutely by the pity that had filled her soul she saw in his face only torturing despair at not being able to rid his life of what so degraded it what could she do for him now what sacrifice could she make sit down she said awkwardly after a pause it is not worthwhile he rejoined in the dull tone of a man crushed to the earth beneath a heavy burden i have been waiting for an hour to see you alone that i might tell you that which must be told i have spoken with my wife she will not consent to a divorce and without her consent no divorce is possible she has never given me any legal cause for a separation no never strange as it may seem in a woman of her class yesterday evening i spoke to her and there was a terrible scene and now his voice grew fainter now all is over he laid his hand upon the back of a chair as if to support himself and paused for a moment then resumed i ought to have written to you it would have been far better far but i could not deny myself one more sight of you farewell now all is over she stood as if rooted to the spot pale mute searching feverishly for some consolation for him what more could she offer him there was a gulf as of death between them she sought some path that would lead across it in vain she felt faint and giddy farewell he murmured thanks thanks for all the joy for all the sorrow good god how dear it has been his voice broke he turned away holding out to her for the last time a slender trembling hand why at sight of that hand did memory recall so vividly the half starved artist led after whom as a tiny girl she had run to relieve his misery and now she could do nothing for him nothing really nothing suddenly it flashed upon her 
she had but to hold out her arms to forget herself and his anguish would be transformed to bliss compassion grew within her and took possession of her like insanity her soul was shaken as by an earthquake what had been above was now beneath and from the chaos one thought emerged at first formless as a dream then waxing clearer until it took shape as a command gradually obtaining absolute mastership of her she raised her head proud resolved have you the courage to break with all your present life and to begin a new one with me she asked a new life he murmured and vaguely uncertainly as if unable to trust his senses and fearing to lend words to what was monstrous and impossible he added with you yes he recoiled a step and looked her full in the face speechless breathless a burning blush rose to her cheeks you have not the courage she said sternly well then with an imperious gesture she turned away but he detained her not the courage he cried seizing her hand and carrying it to his lips offer a cup of pure water to a man perishing of thirst and ask him if he has the courage to drink the question is not of me but of you have you the faintest idea of the meaning of what you have said she shook her head i have learned to look life in the face i know what i am doing i know what the consequences of my act will be i know that i resign all intercourse with my fellow beings saving only with yourself that my only refuge on earth will be at your side i know that i shall be a lost creature in the eyes of the world and yet if i may cherish the conviction that thereby i can redeem your shattered existence that i can purify and ennoble your life i am ready her voice always soft and full of that quality which goes straight to the heart was veiled and vibrating her hands were clasped upon her breast her head was proudly erect and her eyes seemed larger than usual from the ecstasy that shone in them she was supernaturally lovely and never had the chaste purity peculiar to her beauty been more distinctly stamped upon her face than at this moment when she she erica landoff was voluntarily proposing to follow a married man through the world as his mistress erica there was a boundless exultation in his voice he took one step towards her to clasp her in his arms and to press the first kiss upon her lips but she repulsed him overcome it seemed by sudden distress and dread and when he repeated in a tone of dismay and reproach erica she passed her hand across her brow and murmured my entire life belongs to you do not grudge me a few hours of reflection and preparation he smiled at her reserve and contented himself with pressing his lips tenderly again and again upon her hand as he said caressingly preparation oh my darling my darling meet me tonight at the railway station at 10 and we will start for florence leave all the rest to me tonight it would be impossible she said it is our reception evening i could not leave without giving rise to a search for me then tomorrow he persisted speaking very quickly in his beguiling irresistible voice everything about him betrayed the feverish insistence of a man who suddenly gives free rein to a passion 
which he has hitherto with difficulty held in check. Tomorrow, she repeated anxiously, tomorrow. Do not delay, Erika, if you are really resolved. Tomorrow be it then. The words came syllable by syllable from her lips in a kind of dull staccato. Erika, his eyes shone, his whole being seemed transfigured. Yes, she went on. Constance Malbach has arranged an excursion to Chioza tomorrow in a steamer she has chartered. My grandmother is to chaperon the party. At the last moment, I will refuse to accompany her and I shall then be free. When shall I come? They decided upon taking the train, leaving between 8 and 9 in the evening for Vienna. Then other necessary details were arranged. A process unutterably distasteful to Erika, to whom it seemed like making the business arrangements for a funeral. She suffered intensely in thus descending to blank, prosaic reality from the visionary heights to which she had soared. At last, everything had been discussed. There was nothing more to be said. A great dread then stole over her. She grew very silent. I cannot believe in my bliss, he murmured. You stand there in your white robes, so chaste and grave, with that holy light in your eyes, more like a martyr awaiting death than a loving woman ready to break through all barriers to... There was something in this description of the situation that offended her offended her so deeply that with what was almost harshness, she interrupted him, saying, And now I pray you go. He looked at her in some dismay. She cast down her eyes and with flaming cheeks stammered, My grandmother will return in a few moments. I should not like to see you in her presence. You are right, he said, changing color. Your grandmother has always been so kind to me. And now? Ah, go. May I not come to see you at some time during the day tomorrow? No. In the evening, then at eight. She looked him full in the face, stern resolve in her eyes. I shall be punctual, she said. Tomorrow at eight, he whispered. Tomorrow at eight, she repeated. A minute afterwards, he stood alone in the sunlit space behind the hotel. He rubbed his eyes, seeming to waken slowly from a lovely and most improbable dream. At first, he felt only exhilaration, the joy of a near approach to a long-desired but unhoped-for goal. Tomorrow at eight, he whispered to himself several times. Then on a sudden, the keen edge of his delight was blunted. His joy seemed to slip through his fingers. He could not retain it. He recalled the entire scene through which he had just passed. He saw the girl's expression of face. He heard the sound of her voice. It was all lovely, exquisitely lovely. But after all, there was something inharmonious, unnatural in it. This very girl who had of her own free impulse proposed to fly with him had never during their long consultation been impelled to utter one word of affection for him. And he himself was conscious that he could not have demanded it of her. She had been gentle enthusiastic, self-sacrificing. Yes, self-sacrificing even to fanaticism. Self-sacrificing. He repeated the word to himself in an undertone. It had seized hold of his imagination as portraying precisely her attitude and bearing. Self-sacrificing. Yes, but not the slightest evidence had she given him of warm, passionate affection. He frowned as he walked on thoughtfully. 
How does she picture to herself the future? I wonder. Distinctly in his memory rang her words. I know that I resign all intercourse with my fellow beings, saving with yourself that my only refuge on earth will be at your side. I know that I shall be a lost creature in the eyes of the world. And yet, if I can only cherish the conviction that I can thereby redeem your shattered existence, that I can purify and ennoble your life, I am ready. How ravishing she had been whilst uttering these words. And beautiful, pathetic words they were. But he shivered in spite of the Venetian mesh sunshine. Some cord of overwrought feeling suddenly snapped. A stifling sensation of ungrateful and almost angry rebellion against an undeserved happiness assailed him. How could this be? He was paralyzed by a cowardly dread. He was ashamed of this revulsion of feeling and struggled against it with angry self-contempt. But he could not shake it off. He had a vague consciousness that he must always be thus shamed in Erika's presence. To avoid being so, he should have to incite himself to a degree of high-souled enthusiasm which was unnatural and inconvenient. Purify and ennoble his life. What did that mean? Purify? Ennoble? End of chapter 23